talking a little bit about next step, and I want to add to that a couple of comments uh, that really next step is about, it is a campaign, but it's more than a campaign. The next step is a value. It's a way of following Jesus. And, uh, and, and being a next step follower of Jesus means being a person who's eager to take that next step, whatever it looks like, and following Jesus. And we believe a great next step for a lot of us uh, this year is starting the new year with 40 days with Jesus. So what we're going to be doing over the next 40 days, the next six weeks, I'm going to ask you to be here every Sunday. We'll be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be studying Matthew together. And then also, if you didn't yet pick up your little booklet in the back, we have a prayer and Bible reading journal that will guide you through daily readings through the the Gospels of of Mark and Luke. So what's going to happen is over the next 40 days, as you're doing the Bible readings and as you're praying, you're spending daily time with Jesus in in reading the Scriptures and in prayer, but you're also uh, spending time weekly gathering with God's people as well where we're going to be uh, reading the scriptures together, working our way through Matthew, and, and, and looking at all that together. Uh, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, excuse me, let me back up here a little bit. Uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew's chapters 8 and 9. I say that chapters 8 and 9. We're actually going to take two weeks for it. We'll look at chapter 8 this week, chapter 9 next week. But in Matthew chapters uh, 5 through 7, when you look at that, uh, it, it, it's, it, what, what it is, is it, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the things that we see it, in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, what we see about Jesus is this, that Jesus is the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. He is the Messiah uh, that the Old Testament spoke to us about. He is, uh, he is uh, Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. He is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And, and he is the true Messiah of Israel and the true Messiah of all God's people of all time. In, in chapter 3, we read about the inauguration uh, uh, of the ministry of Jesus and the baptism of John. And then in chapter 4, in chapter four we read about how Jesus began, uh, just before his, his earthly ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness in prayer and in fasting where he was also tempted by the devil. In chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we see here the authority of Jesus in his teaching. The authority of Jesus in his teaching. In fact, what the Bible says in, 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 in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things. So you remember that really long sermon, the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount? It says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now, I want you to tell me something. I want you to tell me the truth here. How many of you have ever fallen asleep in church while the pastor was preaching? Yeah, yeah, me too. So how many of you have fallen asleep while you're actually preaching? Okay, all right. I'm the only one. All right, all right. So with, with Jesus, with Jesus, nobody fell asleep. Nobody fell asleep. Well, maybe one did. But when Jesus had finished saying these things, it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And listen to why. Because he taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so what we see in chapters 5 through 7 is that Jesus reveals his authority in his teaching. But what we're going to see in Matthew's, uh, chapters, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is we're going to see the authority of Jesus in his miracles. So we see his authority in his words, and now we're going to look at his authority uh, in, in his works. And what the Bible tells us in Matthew 9, 8, it says, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. 
You remember how they were awestruck by the teaching of Jesus? Now, when they're seeing the miracles of Jesus, they're, they're, they're filled with awe. And it says they praise God who had given such authority to man. So we see his authority in his teaching. We see his authority in his works. In Matthew chapters 8 through 9, we'll see three miracles followed by two words on discipleship. Followed by three miracles, followed by two words on discipleship, followed by three miracles. The symmetry of Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is not accidental. It's not incidental. The symmetry of chapters 8 and 9 is very, very intentional. In fact, sometimes people will read Matthew and they'll look and they'll say, well, why are the order of the miracles different in Matthew from Mark and Luke. You see the same miracles, but you see a slightly different order to it. And the reason for it is this, is that that Matthew is arranging his material, not so much chronologically, but he's arranging it more thematically or topically. He's driving us to a point, and he wants to make a point about who Jesus is. He wants you to see Jesus in a way that will change your life. That's what Matthew's trying to do. And so what, what Matthew does, and what we're going to do today, is we're not going to look at all of that. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first three miracles of Jesus, and then we're going to look at these two, first two words on discipleship. And I think what you're going to see in these first two words of discipleship, that Jesus was very concerned about something that we're concerned about. What we're going to see when we look at this is we're going to see that Jesus is very concerned about the exact same thing that we've been already talking about this morning, that you've already seen on the stage. Because what we're going to see is that Jesus is very much concerned about what we're calling next step discipleship. And then we're going to see the authority of Jesus in two more stories. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of survey through the text, and we're going to camp out on what it means to be a next step discipleship, or next step disciples. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verses 1 through 4, The Bible says this, it says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So remember, the mountainside, Jesus is teaching the multitudes. And and, and the Bible tells us that, that large crowds, multitudes were following him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand. It touched the man. That, that Remember, I don't know how much of you know, uh, know about leprosy and stuff like that. There's some question as exactly, was this Hansen's disease or another kind of skin disease? But, but this is what we know from the Jews, is that when a person had leprosy, they were not just considered sick, they were considered unclean. And if you touch that person who was considered unclean, then you became unclean just by touching them. And so if, if Matt over here has leprosy, and I come over here, and I touch Matt, it's not Matt who becomes clean. It's me who becomes unclean. And what, what Jesus does is it says, the guy with leprosy says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There is no question in the leper's mind about the authority of Jesus, about the power of Jesus. The only question he has is about the willingness of Jesus. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the Bible tells us that Jesus reached out his hand. And most likely, Jesus has to reach out because the man is shrinking back. The man, but in, in, in their tradition, if I had leprosy and you were coming close to me and you didn't notice, I had to cry out to you, unclean, unclean. 
I had to tell you that I was unclean so you wouldn't draw near to me. And what this man is doing is most likely he is probably shrinking back a little bit from Jesus, but Jesus is reaching out and touching him. And he says, I'm willing. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, the man was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone about what what just happened, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In the story of the leper, what we see here is that Jesus, uh, that he, his sovereign power and his sovereign authority always works in concordance. You know what concordance means? Not the book, concordance, but concordance in agreement or in harmony. So what we see here with Jesus is that, that the, the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus always works within the sovereign will of Jesus. That Jesus is not only sovereign in power, he is sovereign in authority, but he is also sovereign in his will, the sovereign will of Jesus. Now, why do I emphasize that? Why do we want to look at that? Why is that important on the front end of looking at these miracles? That what, 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 Luke, or excuse me, what Matthew is doing for us here is he's highlighting something about how Jesus works. That Jesus always works according to his will. And, and, and some of us might say, well, why would Jesus not be willing to heal someone who's sick? Okay? Would, I mean, is that not a, a fair question to ask? And what we see throughout the scriptures is this, is that God sometimes allows his people to suffer, to be sick, and sometimes even to die. He does. I mean, he does that for reasons that we may not fully understand, for a purpose we don't really understand. If, if you have a question about that, all you have to do is go back uh, to the, the Old Testament book of Job. And, and what, what happens with Job is Job's, he's clueless. He doesn't know anything about the conversation between God and Satan. But what God does is God allows Satan to touch the life of Job. See, God does allow sometimes things, bad things to happen to good people. He does that. He allows, sometimes allows bad things to happen to good people for reasons that we don't fully understand. And with Job, what happens is that God allows Job to take away all of his possessions, or Satan to take away all of Job's possessions. He allows Satan to take away uh, Job's family. And he allows uh, Satan to touch uh, Job's flesh and to make him sick. And then sometimes the, that there are these seasons. And, and, and the reason I think it's important to, to point this out is when we begin to look at these miracles, I think we need to understand that what Jesus is showing us is not necessarily what's indicative of everybody who wants a miracle. That what, what Jesus is doing here, in a sense, is he's playing his, he, he's, 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 um, playing his calling card. What, what he's doing is he has sent the leper to... Uh, to the, the, the priest to, to let them know, to ask for the sacrifice of being made clean. And, and, and the reason that that's significant and important is this, is that up to this time, only two times in all the scriptures has anybody ever been healed of leprosy. Okay? Before this event, only two times was anybody uh, ever, uh, was ever healed of leprosy. One of those was Miriam, the sister of Moses, when Miriam and Aaron were in conflict with Moses. And what God did is he struck Miriam with leprosy uh, to, to, because they were saying, hey, we're just as called by God as Moses is. And what Moses did is Moses cried out to God on her behalf, and she was healed. That's the first incident. Uh, the other incident was with the uh, Syrian, 
doggone it, what's his name? Naaman. Yeah, Naaman. Uh, where he had leprosy, went to Elijah, and he was healed as well. But the, the last time that someone had been healed of leprosy before this man had been several hundred years. And so when this guy shows up in the temple, once a leper, and the priests are seeing this guy being clean, it's like, all right, something's happening here. And what, what, what Jesus is revealing is that he is the true Messiah of Israel. Okay, I'm getting bogged down here a little bit. Verse 5, it says, when, when Jesus had, centered, uh, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. He said, Lord, uh, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, everybody know what a centurion is? A centurion is a, is a commander in the Roman army. He's over 100 soldiers, roughly 100 soldiers, sometimes a little less, sometimes 100, uh, a, a, a few more. But roughly, it's about 100 soldiers. And so this centurion, who is a Gentile, comes to Jesus, and, uh, and he says, Lord, uh, my servant lies home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And so Jesus asked him, shall I come and heal him? Now, for a Jew to go into the home of a Gentile would make him unclean. It would make him unclean. And what, what the centurion says, uh, he says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where, they will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done to you just as you believed it would. And a servant was healed at that moment. In the story of the centurion and the servant, there are a couple of things that we see happening in this text. But just one that I want to I focus in on here for just a moment with you is this. Is that with the Jews, they believed that entrance into the kingdom of heaven was guaranteed for them. If you were Jewish, you believed that you had a place at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You believed that you had a special place in God's kingdom only because you had the right skin color, the right ethnicity, and the right heritage. And that's what they believed. And what Jesus is doing in this text is he's doing more. He is healing this man, but he's also, what we're seeing here is that he's turning that idea of what brings you to the table of Abraham. He's turning that idea on its head. And he's saying, you know what qualifies you to have a place at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What qualifies you to have a place in the kingdom of heaven is not your ethnicity, it's not your heritage. It's not who your father was or your grandfather or your great-great-grandfather. What qualifies you and gives you a place at my table in the kingdom of heaven, at the table of Abraham, is faith. And, 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 and so Jesus says that he was, the Bible tells us that he was amazed because he had not seen such great, great faith in anyone in Israel. In, um, in verses 14 through 15, 
The scripture says this. It says, when Jesus, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever, fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When the evening came, many were demon-possessed, were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits in, in, with a word. He healed all the sick. Uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So what we, we've seen so far is we've seen those first three miracles. You remember how I talked about three miracles, one, uh, you know, uh, two words on discipleship, and then, and then three more miracles. That, that in this third miracle, in the story of Peter's mother-in-law and the people of Capernaum, we see that the healings and miracles of Jesus verify that he's the long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah spoke of in the Old Testament scriptures when he said he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that he is the fulfillment. He is the the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. Are you seeing this? Is this making sense for you? All right. So let's look at let's look at this word about these two words about discipleship and talk a little bit about next step discipleship. Uh, in verses 18 through 22, the scripture says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross over to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, are you with me? Are you seeing this scene in your head? That, that, that Jesus is getting ready to leave. There's a, a large crowd that's around him. And as he's getting ready to leave, there is a person who's called a teacher of the law. He was a religious leader. There's this religious leader, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Hey, hey, don't forget me. Don't forget me. When you get in your boat, don't, don't forget about me. I mean, make room for me. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. What does Jesus say to this man? He says, Foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what Jesus is saying is that he's saying to this guy, he's saying, you know, just be ready to count the cost. You say that you want to follow me, but there is a cost, a high cost in following me. That, that it might mean that you lose the comfort of having your own home. It might mean that you embrace a life of homelessness following me. Are you really ready for that? Are you really ready to make a commitment following Jesus? Folks, this is a part of what's really concerns me about North American Christianity is we believe in following Jesus without cost. And Jesus is saying, look, following me is always costly. It's always costly. Another person speaks up, another disciple, and he says to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, how many of you, you, when you read this, it sounds like this guy is getting ready to go to a funeral that the guy's dad just died, okay? Now, here's the thing, folks. If his dad had just died, he wouldn't be at the Jesus meeting. If his dad had just died, where would he be? At the bedside by his father. We're not talking about a man who just lost his dad. We're talking about a man who says, hey, I'm glad to follow you. Just first let me bury my father, okay? Uh, Interesting text, uh, interesting uh, interesting comment. Uh, I'll just tell you where I fall at in this, and there are different Bible teachers who come in different places on this. Uh, I, I think what, what, what this man was saying is, is that, you know, I'm ready to follow you. I'm just not ready to follow you just now. See, I, I want to wait until my dad has died, 
by the way, my dad is perfectly healthy. You know, he's, he, he's, he's 53 years old. And he's probably going to live another, you know, 18 years, 19, I don't know, 20, 25 years. But I think what, what this man's got going on is that he's waiting until his dad dies, not just so he can take care of his responsibilities to his dad, but so he can have his inheritance. You follow what I'm, where this is going? That this is a man who's really not, he's not ready to follow Jesus like he says he is. He is a man who wants to follow Jesus, and this is how he wants to follow him. I want to follow you on my terms. I want to follow you. I want to follow you, Jesus, as long as we do it my way. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly ready to follow you, Jesus. By the way, we've got to do it my way. You ready for that? And what Jesus says to this man is he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Next up, discipleship. I believe that Jesus is giving us a picture of what next step discipleship is supposed to look like. I think what, what Jesus is doing is he's rebuking two kinds of very superficial uh, two, two, two different kinds of uh, superficial, uh, uh, he's rebuking this idea of superficial discipleship. The people uh, who want to follow Jesus without first counting the cost, that's the first kind of superficial discipleship. The person who's very eager and enthusiastic about it, but they've never stopped to think about what's it going to cost to truly be a follower of Jesus. In other words, yeah, they're ready to, to take the plunge. They're ready to take the step. Because for them, they haven't even counted the cost. And, and that's the first, kind of, uh, the, the first kind of superficial discipleship that Jesus is, is rebuking here. Is that too often in our world today, people approach Jesus and they approach the church. This is how they do it. They approach Jesus, they approach the church as a vendor. A vendor of spiritual services... Uh, religious services and spiritual experiences. That what they're looking for is they're looking for an experience. Or what they're looking for is they're looking for a service. And what they're looking for is they're kind of looking for a kind of Christianity that's very, very comfortable, that's not very costly, uh, and where I can stay and my, my, live my life in my comfort zones. And that, that's what part of what I'm concerned about is wrong with the church in, in uh, North America today is that what people are doing is they're, they're looking for a very superficial kind of, of, of relationship with God. Uh, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? If you want to follow me, you need to consider the cost of following me. The second kind of, of superficial discipleship that Jesus rebukes here are people who want to follow Jesus, just not right now. You understand what this looks like? I had this one down, all right? I want to follow Jesus, just not right now. I want to follow Jesus, but after I finish high school. Okay? I want to follow Jesus, but after I finish college. I want to follow Jesus, but after I have a little fun without Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but after I get married. I want to follow Jesus, but after... I have kids. Are you with me? That if there is a but after that qualifies following Jesus, 
you're not following Jesus. See, Jesus deserves first place, not second place. And discipleship is not discipleship if, it's, if Jesus is not in first place. If what's in first place is your career and career advancement, if what's, if, I'm going to tell you something here that, that, that might ruffle a couple of feathers. If what's in first place is my children. If what's in first place is my children. You know, a couple chapters later, what Jesus is going to say is that anybody who loves father or mother are children more than me, does not love me. That he says that I have to have first place. And this is exactly uh, what Jesus is laying out for us. Is This is what, by the way, I believe when Jesus has first place in our love, we will love our children with a greater love. We will love our spouses with a greater love when Jesus has first place. I think that when Jesus has first place in our lives, it enlarges our hearts to love others more. I believe, this is what I believe, and, and you can believe anything you want to. I believe that a lot of times when we put our family in first place, we're really not even putting our family in first place. We're putting ourselves in first place. I don't want my children to have any problems in their lives. Why? Because I feel the pain of their problems. And yet sometimes it's through the problems that God really begins to work in the lives of our children or the lives of, 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 of someone else that we love dearly. And what we've got to do is we've got to put Jesus in first place. A couple other things, and what I'm going to do is, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, I'm going to speed through this real quick. Uh, in, in the rest of Matthew chapter 8, what we see is we see Jesus' authority over the natural world. We see Jesus' authority over the, the supernatural world. In verses 23 through 27, uh, the, the Bible tells us about how, you remember how they were getting ready to get in the boat, and yet the one guy says, hey, wait, don't, don't forget me. You know, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now they're actually getting in the boat. Now they're actually taking off. And uh, they get in the boat. They're out on the, this lake. The Sea of Galilee is actually a large lake, the uh, Sea of Tiberias. And it says, suddenly a furious storm. And if you've got your Bible open there, circle those words. You, you want to hang on to these words. It is a furious storm. You know what a furious storm is? It is, it is uh, it, it's the, it, in Greek, it literally says this, mega Seismos. You know what that is? Mega. You know what mega is. You know what seismos is. This is like an earthquake of a storm. This is the kind of storm that makes the whole world shake. It is a. This is a a a super storm uh, uh, with with an earthquake magnitude. This is the kind of storm that terrifies the experienced sailor the experienced fishermen, because they know we're not making it to the other side. We're all about to die. And so the disciples cry out and they say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. The Bible tells us that Jesus had been asleep in the back of the boat and, 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 and the disciples are, hey, Lord, save us, we're, we're going to drown. And, and, and Jesus replies, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? There's a guy, his name is Matthew Henry. He was a teacher of another generation. And Matthew Henry says this about this experience. And and, and what Matthew Henry says is this. He says in this text, Jesus does not chide his disciples for disturbing him with their prayers. He does not chide his disciples for uh, disturbing him with their prayers. 
he chides his, his disciples for disturbing themselves with their fears. Are you with me? And so uh, uh, in, in, in this chapter, what we see is, is early in the chapter, we see the centurion. And, and the centurion is a Gentile, and he's described with great faith. And now we have the disciples, these guys who are the faithful followers of Jesus, you know, faithful, uh, little faithful uh, disciples who have little faith. The interesting thing is, is that Jesus works with great faith, Jesus works with little faith. The what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't just say, hey, you know, you guys, you should be past this by now. Uh, since your faith is, is little, I'm going to leave you to the mega super seismos earthquake of a storm. You guys are toast. I'm heading out. He doesn't do that. But what he does is even in the, their response of little faith is, is he uh, brings calm to the storm. And finally, we see Jesus' authority over the supernatural world. And what happens? They get to the other side uh, of uh, the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gadarenes, and it says that two demon-possessed come to Jesus from the tombs. And, and the Bible says that they were exceedingly violent, that no one could pass that way. And, and, and they're crying out to Jesus, you know, the, the demons are, Jesus, Son of God, uh, you know, why are you here? Have you come before your appointed time? And, and so the, the demons beg Jesus, and they say, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And so Jesus says, go. They, they, uh, they, they went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down uh, the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. The first case in the scriptures of deviled ham. And that is the point. I'm sorry. I, I, I Yeah. But, but what, we, we, what we see is that, that Jesus has authority over the natural world. Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. I'm not sure if I did this very good. I, I kind of tried to do a survey. I tried to kind of focus in uh, on one thing here. So just be, be patient with me. I wanted to try to, to go over the whole chapter with you because what I want you to see is I, I, I talked to you about the symmetry of, of Matthew chapters 8 and 9, that we have three miracles, two words on discipleship, three miracles two words on discipleship and three miracles, and I was talking to you about the symmetry, that interwoven in all these stories, there are four major themes, four major themes. And the first theme is the authority of Jesus, that we see the authority of Jesus in his teaching, but we see the authority of Jesus in his works. Secondly is we see the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus that's always working, that his sovereign power is always working in concordance or in agreement or in harmony with his... his um, uh, with, with his sovereign will. Uh, so we see his sovereign authority. We see his, his sovereign power. We see the theme of faith that's woven through these chapters. And then we see the theme uh, of discipleship. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with everything that I've just... I, I feel like what I've done is I've just taken a bunch of stuff and thrown it up against the wall, and I'm hoping something will stick with you. So, so let me see if I can answer a question for you. What are we supposed to do with everything we've looked at this morning? And, 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 and so let me try to wrap it up by saying this. These miracles do not teach us that Jesus will always do a miracle every time we ask him with faith. Okay? Okay, let, 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 let me put it this way. I have a little dog. I have to stop and think about what his name is. His name is Watson. <laughs> 
why do I have to think about his name? Uh, I have a little dog. His name is Watson. And, um, and if I tell, if I have a little treat in my hand, and I'll hold my hand up like this, and if I say, Watson, sit, guess what Watson does? He sits. Why? Because he's going to get that treat. Faith is not like a treat I hold in my hand, and I say to Jesus, sit. And now he's obligated to do whatever miracle I asked him to do. The miracles of Jesus in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are a foretaste. It's not indicative of everything that's supposed to happen in this age. I'm not saying miracles aren't supposed to happen in this age because I think they are. I think they do. I think every time someone becomes a Christian, that's a miracle. I think I saw God heal my wife. I think the doctors have no way of explaining what happened to her, but I I think I do. I think we were all praying. A lot of other people were praying. I think God healed her. I'm not saying the miracles don't happen. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is that these miracles are meant to be a foretaste of what's going to happen in the age to come. When suffering will be done away with forever, when sin will be done away with forever, when uncleanness will be done away with forever, when, when Jesus will occupy the throne of David as the messianic king of Israel. Um, these miracles are a con- kind of like a calling card. They are a foretaste of what we uh, sometimes still experience in the present age, but we, we will experience more fully in the age to come. The miracles of Jesus in this chapter are a calling card verifying that Jesus is people. This is talking to us about how, who Jesus is. This is talking to us about who Jesus is. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament who touches and cleanses the defiled. Are you unclean in any area of your life? The Messiah of the Old Testament who touches and cleanses the the defiled, who welcomes Gentiles to the Feast of Abraham, who heals a mother-in-law and common ordinary people, who rebukes superficial discipleship and wants us to become next-step disciples or followers of him who rescues the confused and the fearful and rescues the demonized. So, so, let us boldly draw near to Jesus for cleansing. Because when Jesus touches, he isn't defiled, but we are cleansed. Let us draw, uh, let us boldly draw near to Jesus for cleansing. Let us trust his sovereign power and surrender to his sovereign will. Let us confirm our place at the feast of Abraham through faith, in him. Let us give up superficial discipleship that falls, uh, fails to count the cost of following him. Let us give up superficial discipleship that fails to give Jesus uh, first place in every part of our lives. Let us trust in Jesus, trust him in the earth-shaking megastorms of life and kiss our fears goodbye. And let us come to him to free us from the demons that torment us. Let's pray. God, today what we want to do is we want to worship you. We want to, uh, we want to praise you. Uh, because you, uh, you have given us a Messiah. You have given us a Messiah who is God with us. You have given us a Messiah, Jesus, the Lord who saves. 
that you have given us a Messiah who cleanses the defiled. You have given us a Messiah uh, who gives us a place at the table of Abraham through faith. You are a Messiah who, who loves uh, the ordinary people uh, that we're surrounded by. You are the Messiah uh, who deserves uh, first place in every area of our lives. And God, today we want to worship you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um,